Hey guys, it's Abby and welcome to Double Shot. Just like your coffee, our conversations are a smooth blend of life's moments, both bitter and sweet. Before this episode does go to air, I, I just want to pay my respects to the founders of our land. We are on Gadigal lands and I'm so proud to be on this land. Hey guys, welcome to Double Shot. I am your host, Abby Mustafa. Well, Santilla, I mean, it's it's an absolute joy to have you here with me today. Thank you so much. I know that it's, it's technically a, a public holiday here in New South Wales. For you guys, it's kind of work as usual in uh, Melbourne. How's it going? It's going well. We had a public holiday last week because of the grand final. So of course, you get to have one too. Only fair. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's lockdown anyways. Apologies in advance. I'm in the west of Sydney, so if you do hear choppers or anything in the background. <laughs> That's very much a sign of the times, babe. It's a t- it's sign really of the times. Because I've been reading about it on the news, but I just, is it really that intense? Do you know what? It's, it's gotten a lot better now as we're kind of near the end of it. I mean, it's only about a week until we're out. But yeah, there has been cops and it's just like the choppers. It's just like a constant reminder that, hey, look, we're on the lookout. Everyone gets, I think we're all at the stage where like, we're just so fatigued. We get it. We're staying home. But yeah, the choppers is just so dramatic. At first it was really scary. I was like, this is like something out of a film. But now you just kind of, you just adjust to it. And it's like, you'll be in a FaceTime call and you just hear the chopper. And it's like strange times, but you know, it is what it is. Um, Santilla, your introduction, I mean, it's going to be a bit of a long one because you've had quite an illustrious career. You know, you're a real contributor to society. And, and I think it's why it's so good to have someone of your caliber on this podcast. And I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak to me. You, you still serve as a member of the federal government's advisory group. Is that correct? Of Australian African relations. Mm-hmm. And how's that going? How did, how did that come about? You get a letter from the foreign minister. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, it was Julie Bishop, and what I like about it is it's a nonpartisan role, and you give advice to the government of the day about you know foreign policy in this in this context to do with Australia-Africa relations. So you know the remit for the, the group is to essentially promote Australian interests. Obviously, that's where we we start looking from, and 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 how to build the relationship between Australia and Africa. And obviously, Australia has a lot of economic interests in Africa. And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of that work. Um, it's been a bit quiet because of COVID and everything else. Yeah. Um, the group's usually a bit more active in that sense, but it's, it's a different, it's a different world, different experience. You learn a lot about foreign policy and diplomacy and. <laughs> I almost find it, it, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I think that title in itself, knowing that, you know, you're kind of adding so much value to, to, you know, a part of your community as well. Your parents must be really proud about that. I hope so. <laughs> but yeah, you've got parents. You, parents, yeah. they just see you as you. They don't, you know, they're like, my parents, they are proud, I should say that. But at the same time, I don't think that they think that anything that I do changes how my family sees me, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. I think that's an ethnic thing, though. Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you're allowed to say that. Your family, like my mum, rest in peace, she always kind of was, not the, she's not going to kick me when I'm down. I'm not going to say that. But tough love is a thing. I think whenever yeah. you get too big for your own boots, your parents kind of have to be like, yeah, rain it back in, kid. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, so it's, it's a very difficult one to sort of go, yeah, because in, in my, fa- to my family's eyes, I'm just Santi, and yeah. they don't really, you know, they're obviously proud, but... I mean, they also just couldn't care less. 
Yeah. They're just like, move your dishes, get out of the way. That's it. That's it. And it comes back to that. It's like, we don't care who you are. You know, if it's time to do the dishes, do the dishes. And it's just humbling nature, which is part of the course of families. That's it. Absolutely. I mean, in any culture, of course. Santilla, I'm speaking to you today, particularly because of your work on our African roots, which is an SBS special. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Obviously, I've seen it and I'll, I'll go into it. But how did that come about? So a couple of years ago here in Victoria, there were these uh, narratives in the media around African crime gangs and um, that there was all this, you know, violence and there was commentary in the media about people of African descent generally portrayed in a negative light, you know, and a lot of these narratives were quite racialized because, it, you know, they were essentially saying that the reason why people are committing this crime is because of their background and obviously no one is inherently predisposed to doing something because of the color of their skin. You know, societal factors contribute to why people do certain things. And you do find that people from marginalized backgrounds generally tend to miss out on the opportunities that other communities might have. It's mainly a societal and policy failure than it is a failure of sort of going, it's because of your racial background. And I sort of grown increasingly tired of having to explain why those sorts of stories were racist and racialized. And a line that I kept hearing a lot was that, you know, the reason why people of African descent were being targeted by the media was that it was an Australian rite of passage. Every other migrant group has copped that kind of criticism. The Vietnamese have copped it. Lebanese copped it. The Greeks, the Italians. So it's just the Africans' turn. And I sort of thought, okay, maybe maybe there is some truth to it because it is true. I mean, most migrant groups post, you know, particularly after the white Australia policy was, was abolished, have experienced racism, xenophobia and degrees of prejudice. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But I also knew that there were people of African descent that had arrived long before then. I'd heard some stories. I'd even gone to an exhibition that named, that sort of made mention of it. You know, this was mm-hmm. at the National Gallery of Victoria. But I wanted evidence. I sort of thought, gosh, if I can find some evidence that just proves that these people existed, maybe then we can start having a more mature conversation about identity and belonging. And I went to the archives and I started going through the archives and very quickly I was able to verify the people in the first fleet. And then it just started to snowball from there, found hundreds of others. And I went, right, okay. So now no one has the right to ask me where I'm from because people like me have been here as long as... (laughs) white people from England, you know what I mean? So you can't, you can't go where you from because I'll also ask you where you from. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, so, and, and technically the only people that have the right to ask us where we're from are First Nations peoples. Absolutely. Um, this is their land. Everyone else has come from somewhere. And that was really what started it. And, and then that led to um, then sort of, you know, putting together the idea for the documentary to sort of go, because I was writing a history, I'm still writing a history book on, on all these stories but you know books again they can be quite dense and not everyone has access to them they're pretty expensive but something like a documentary especially in a public broadcaster free to air anyone with a tv can watch it and you can come to these stories in a way that doesn't require you to have read anything else before and but you can still get something from it and so that was why it was important to also make a documentary about these stories the thing that i found so amazing about African roots is 
essentially, I remember as a child, you know, I'm not, I went to school, I had a public school background. It was a selective school, but it was still public school background in southwestern Sydney. I didn't feel like I was disadvantaged at any stage. I've gone on to study a master's in future journalism. I feel like I've had a pretty decent career to date. But in saying that, I remember, and I loved history. I mean, who doesn't love history, right? We're journos. We're going to love history. Yeah. And I remember learning, my, my favourite subject was essentially it was English and then also it was history. And I've got to take myself back to the Abbey of, of actually my, my actual, my name back then, I was, I was Abir. It's Abir, but no one can say that, which is funny in itself. So if someone could say my name, it's Abir, but then I, I actually anglicised, I changed my name myself. So just so you can see, the White Australia policy, it ended. I understand that. But even till now, it trickles down and yeah. it, it has impacted everyone. And I know it's so, my, mine is so minute in comparison to what people of our First Nation would have had to go, have gone through or an African person or even a Lebanese. There was one Lebanese, I found a man of a Lebanese, I'm of Lebanese and um, Syrian background, but born in Australia. And I, I remember we went on an excursion, sorry, I'll, I'll get back on topic with this. And it was, it was about the Anzacs and obviously the Anzac spirit, like it's something that is such a big part of our identity. And that's why it's so amazing, you know, and that's why I kind of, when I sat down you know, to, to, to watch it, it really hit me hard. And you don't, it's weird how I haven't actually been to Lebanon or Syria because every time I go to go, it's so weird, but something's happening where, you know, abroad. So I've always had something happen. It's so bizarre, but I do hope to go eventually when we're out of this bloody lockdown. And I feel so connected to that part of myself. And I remember I was walking through and I had quite a, a mixed a bag at school. It wasn't like it was, you know, uh, oh, the majority of my friends, my friendship group were Anglo-Saxon Australian girls and, you know, a few boys, but generally they were like, you could kind of choose in my school, you could pick and you'd probably call them your cousin, I suppose. Um, anyone who was Lebo, you know, was like, hey, he's my cousin. <laughs> Is he actually your cousin though? It's really awkward when people went on to date as they got older and they were like, are you cousins? We're not actually technically cousins. It's just because we're from the same village. Very awkward, but that's just an ethnic thing. You could pick and choose um, in the school. And I remember we went to the memorial site in Sydney for the Anzacs and we went and I remember seeing a name and the surname was Ibrahim. And I, it kind of just stopped in my tracks. And I asked the man that was a director at the time, it was an older gentleman and he was teaching us. And I just was so upset. It was one of the best excursions I've ever had. Like I just, you know, the Anzac spirit, it's a different thing. And I remember saying, hey, excuse me, I'm, that guy's name up there, amongst all the names that were very Anglo-Saxon, there was one Lebanese name and there was one Lebanese soldier of the surname. And I kind of feel terrible now. I should have, I should have looked it up to find his, his actual name. But I remember I had as kind of, and when you say something about belonging and identity and why it matters so much that it's kind of a race from our history to have someone who has something similar to you that it just, it wasn't there. And the fact that I saw that name up there, that meant something to me. And I remember coming home, rushing home to be like, mom, guess what? There was, you know, a Lebanese soldier. There was, he was a martyr, mm. you know, and he was of Lebanese origin, but he lived in Australia. Can you believe it in those times, mom? Like he was in World War One. Yeah. I think he might've passed. I mean, don't quote me, but I think it was 1915. But I, I remember at the time it meant so much to me. And to see that, you know, people who were of African nature or First Nations, like it's their country, you know, and their name, like that, that part was, how is that not in our history books? Why didn't I learn that? in my history books. Why wasn't that there? Do you know what I mean? Do, do you find that interesting? I do. I mean, and that's the whole point of bringing these stories to the wider audience. I think you touched on something interesting there about, yes, the white Australia policy ended, but a lot of this is still part of, forms part of our cultural fabric. And you are right. I mean, yes, you can outlaw legislation. You can bring an end to certain things, but 
how do you outlaw cultural attitudes? You know, because for 70 years, it wasn't just the policy, it was the narratives. It was the, it was the things that people were saying in their families. I mean, we have examples of descendants in the film that talk about how people were keeping these parts of their history hidden within their families, right? So this wasn't even just happening at a bigger political level, it was within families. And so just because, you know, we wake up one day and go, okay, this is, we're no longer going to treat people differently. We're going to be welcoming people in absolutely right thing to do. And we can all get on board that. But the process of starting to get people to look at other people that don't look like them equally is a little bit harder and it does take a little bit longer. And to your point of belonging and why it's important to see yourself reflected in the, the foundational stories of what makes us Australian is that when you are erased from that, your sense of belonging is constantly questioned, but also when those stories are omitted, what it does is that it reinforces white superiority. It says that only white people can do these great things. Only they can go to wars. Only they can be the heroes. Only they can be feminists. Only they can be great sports stars. When the fact is, is that every human being has the capacity to do amazing things. And we should be telling these stories because every child should grow up with an example of someone that looks like them, shares their background, and has gone on to do great things and they can sort of go, I can do that, but not stories that just reinforce one group as doing better than others. Because what that then does is that anyone else that's not from that dominant group starts to feel like they don't belong and will never belong. Mm -hmm. And that is not where we need to be because none of that is even true. And that's the thing that really frustrates me about all of this. I wish these stories weren't true, but they're true. The, the stories that aren't true are the ones that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Those are the lies. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. That's a great point. I guess this is, it. you know, this is going to be a really broad question to ask. Um, and you can come back and answer it if you like, if you need some time. But what's one myth you wish that you could explain about women of colour in general? When someone asks you, do you call yourself a black woman or do you call yourself a woman of colour? And by all means, I mean it with no offence. Yeah, I, I, I call myself a black African woman. It's certainly in the Australian context, I make that point explicit because there are black women around me that are part of our community and it's also about acknowledging their existence and and and, and so important that we center aboriginal and torres strait islander women first and foremost particularly in these sorts of discourses around intersectionality but i think the things that really upset me around tropes around not just ambition but being able to be assertive and 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 that being misinterpreted as a, as a negative or it's only been, I think, in recent years that I've started to embrace that and I've just gone, I can't, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not going to play small. I'm not going to start to speak a certain way to make you feel more comfortable because I come from a, a background and a culture where women do assert themselves, where women do feel like they can take up space, where women feel like they don't have to apologize for who they are. And if, if that's going to mark me as being loud and angry and all of that sort of stuff, then so be it. But I've had, to, I've had to let go of that because I found that that was limiting my own growth because I can't control how people perceive me. And unfortunately, as women of colour, for so long, there've been these dominant forces and these stories that reinforce these stereotypes. And it's going to take a lot to sort of dismantle those stereotypes. But in the process, we're also losing time in our own lives, mm -hmm. you know, when we should be focusing on living our lives to the best of our ability, we end up focusing on, on, on trying to counter these narratives. And I've just got reached a point in my life where I just don't care anymore. I'm like, well, if you're going to put me in that category, then so be it. But 
also I just wish people could be more creative with their stereotypes. Yeah. Some stereotypes, this is the thing, stereotypes, and I say this with love, sometimes when they come from a place where you go, all right, okay, that's making someone, you know, kind of feel like they're a part of some sort of a culture. I I get that. And if it is actually factual, that's great. Go for it. You know what I mean? But when it's completely not factual and it's debilitating to certain individuals, especially younger kids, Mm. Um, I'm, I'm really, really worried about this TikTok generation. And, and I say this with love, but they're really trying to hype up this kind of stereotype. Mm. Um, and they almost, they, they, it's kind of, we've come the reverse of it, effect. I feel like our generation is kind of, we're like, you know, fuck the stereotype. We are who we are. I'm embracing the fact that I am a young Australian. Well, I am anyway, in general. Obviously, I'm an, I'm an Australian, but I'm a proud Arab girl as well. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. These eyebrows. This is Arab. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> what are some of the stereotypes that you've heard growing up about? I've had that women are, like, I find it really bizarre. People find it, look, I've got quite a strong personality. I talk a lot and it's weird. I am a feminist. I am an absolute feminist. I'm a Muslim feminist as well, which people find so bizarre. And the worst part is for me is that people go, oh, but like, you know, the whole, you shouldn't you be in the kitchen thing. And, it's, and the bizarre thing is, my mum was a strong woman and I realised that now after she passed away and, and doing you know, therapy and what have you and realising that, God, she was a really strong figure in my life and, mm-hmm. and she gave me the confidence to speak well and read well and she really loved English and reading and writing, so I, that kind of helped me. But my dad was my... And he still is now. He's, I call him my housemate now, which is hilarious because we, we live <laughs> together. We've been through lockdown. We went for a picnic yesterday. But my, my dad's kind of he's the one that's given me the confidence to speak mm. you know and, and often Arab women are, are told that like you know you've got to be quiet let the men speak first mm. which does happen in my community I'm not gonna lie it does happen but externally the fact that people think oh you're oppressed and, and your life's really hard it's not the case if I'm in a conversation with my brother and I it's usually me who's yelling not him and my brother's one boy amongst three girls. So you can imagine the life that he's had. He's, <laughs> he's led, you know, with three older sisters, you know what I mean? And, and, and I feel bad. And I do feel bad for uh, the stereotypes for men. I mean, Middle Eastern men in general. I don't want to go there. That's a whole topic in itself. I just, I hate that stereotype that, you know, I need to be oppressed. And, and you know, how can I have my own opinions? And I often have conversations with my father, like even just dinner table conversations. And I'm of a different generation. I'm a lot more open-minded and I'll say he's a bit close-minded. He's of a different generation. You're talking about a 65-year-old man. He's going to be completely different to someone like myself. Mm. And I do challenge him. God, I've challenged him. God knows I've challenged that man. But I'm still under his roof, so clearly it's okay <laughs> thus far. Um, but, yeah, to me, I mean, that's, that's something that, that hits home for me, the fact that we're meant to be. I mean, you say, it's funny you say that the woman of colour or a black woman is usually the, the aggressive one, whereas I'm a woman of colour and obviously it's, it's a different colour. But obviously as an Arab woman, it's almost like you've got to shut up and you've got yeah. to sit in the corner and just kind of do what you're told. You've touched on something there that this is why stereotypes are quite harmful especially when you come from a group that the stereotype becomes the dominant narrative is that there may be elements of stereotype that might be true to certain personalities but it is not the single story of a person as as you've just pointed out within your own family within your own community you're an individual and that's really the heart of the matter is that we need to um treat people as individuals not treat them as representative of 
either their communities, their gender, their sexuality, their race. Absolutely. And this is a freedom that unfortunately isn't afforded to people from various cultural backgrounds. And instead, what's reinforced are a lot of the negative stereotypes, which take away from you know people's sense of self um, identity belonging but also it means that people aren't being seen for who they are they're being seen for ideas of what people think that they are Mm -hmm. um, which is never a good thing um yeah it's yeah stereotypes no good as i said like our generation is kind of like you know what screw the you know fuck it i'm gonna say fuck it but fuck it you can swear on this podcast by the way it's very friendly (laughs) but you can't go for god no but honestly like fuck the stereotype that's why we're here that's why I'm doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, but that's of my generation. I'm mm. already 31 years old. I've had a different kind of experience to say my niece who's 15 years old, who thinks it's kind of, you know, it's almost, it's kind of cool to be, and I, I'm just speaking clearly just of the Lebanese, Western Sydney area. It's kind of, it's kind of cool to date the guy who's a drug dealer. And it's kind of cool to, it, it's really bizarre, but that is that generation. And that's not what my niece believes, but I'm just saying in general, um, do you know, to kind of live up to the, this expectation that like your aspiration, if that's, if you're a kid from Granville or you know, Horryfields, doesn't matter where you're from, that that's the aspiration that you want a guy that's going to buy you a massive diamond ring because he's a drug dealer. Like that's a pretty sad, that's a really sad implication, but I've heard it multiple times and it's not just a meme on a page which is really sad but that's I mean that's a whole other other yeah. topic um, but I just think our generation is very is very different it's almost kind of become like a reverse circle of of the stereotype they want to live up to the stereotype as opposed to keep away from it like I've had to move away from it hence why I changed my name like my, my name is actually you know it's Abby now it's no longer Abir unless you're my family members call me Abir but you know the fact that I've kind of, I removed myself so much, so far away from the stereotype. Whereas you've got these young kids that are growing up and they're kind of, they want to live up to that, that hoodlum look. Like it's kind of cool to be a bit ghetto, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's a socioeconomic background thing. That's not even just a culture. I, mean, I, 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 I can't yeah. speak to I, I just, I, yeah. I, I don't know enough of it. Yeah. Or about Very Sydney, it's Sydney basing. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, people gravitate to things that makes that give them a sense of community mm. in many ways. I don't know if I've got a view on that. No, that's okay. That's all right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this came up, uh, came to mind for me. So, so your myth, your myth is essentially the thing that you'd like to remove is the stereotype that, you know, um, I wouldn't say stereotype. I would just, I, I think for me, it's just about telling the truth. You know, let's tell the truth about who we are, that our history is complicated and that we are mature enough to sit with complexity. You know, we can sit with the complexity of, and that all these histories aren't in opposition as well, that, um, that we need to, we need to tell the truth because, um, the more we tell the truth, the more, the, when we have conversations about who belongs, who's Australian, who's not Australian, it's very difficult to reinforce ideas about, what we think an Australian person looks like versus what the fact of what an Australian person is. And that's really all I'd like to see is just to tell the truth. Let's just tell the truth. Everything that happens beyond that, I don't really know. I don't really have an outcome. But what I also hope comes out of this documentary is that anyone that has been made to feel like an outsider in this country, that's been made to feel like they don't belong, that's been made to feel as though they've had to change who they are, whether it's anglicizing their name or whether it's, you know, doing things to sort of have that proximity to, to whiteness, I guess. I hope that this 
documentary gives them a sense of understanding that they that they belong by being here you already belong and you're okay as you are you don't have to feel like your identity is based on how other people or what the dominant narrative is telling you that you need to be and i think for a very long time there's always been a dominant narrative about who is australian and everyone else is just fitting in but what this documentary has revealed is that Australians have been a very multicultural bunch from the beginning. So because of that, embrace your difference because your difference has always been reflected on this continent, certainly from the point of colonisation. Um, and so I hope that anyone that comes from a marginalised group feels like they don't have to, they don't have to question their Australianness. I, I hope that it gives them a sense of, of belonging in a way that I didn't have when I was growing up. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and I want to ask you a little bit about growing up um, for you. So what was your childhood like? I would say normal. Um, so I grew up between two continents, actually. So I grew up in Zambia up until the age of 10. I moved to Perth because my mum came to study. We lived in Perth. I was there until I was 14. And then we moved back to Zambia because my mum she got a job with the UN and so she started traveling the world and um, I moved back to Australia when I was 18 to study and I moved to Melbourne and I've been in Melbourne since I'm now 35. Your mom was a boss lady. God, that must be so cool to have had that. She, she was. And in many ways, it's, she, you know, she's, you know, my, my mom, when we, when we moved here, my mom had made a decision that she wanted to, so my parents, you know, they, they, they were born British subjects. So Zambia was still colonized by the time my parents were born. And I think they were just around the age of 10 when Zambia became independent. And because they were colonial subjects and they'd, they'd come from a family of colonial subjects, um, they were the first generation to be educated. Um, to go to school, to go to high school, and then finally university. And so my dad, when my parents got married, my dad, it was thing where my dad first went to university, then he got his master's degree. And then um, my mom was sort of doing other things as well. But then later on, she decided, when my brother and I was sort of, you know, like my brother was nine, I was 10. My mom sort of thought, okay, it's now my time to go and get my degree, which is why I ended up coming here because she was... Um, a pathologist, a forensic pathologist, and she was doing a criminology degree. So she was, and at the time she was in her 40s, and she was still very ambitious. And my parents found a way, even within their own relationship, to support each other and allow the, each other to sort of pursue their dreams and goals. And so I grew up with parents that were always very ambitious and were determined, and it was so normal for me. So when I look at my life and I look at my brother's. My brother's an astrophysicist and he lives in France and we constantly talk and to us it's normal but whenever we have conversations with people people go wow you're but it's this weird thing because it's pretty phenomenal yeah but when you grow up in an environment where that's normal and it's so it was fostered yeah no yeah. I can't see it as anything different because you're told from the get-go that the world is literally your oyster if you want to go and do something you can do it and you were talking about your dad and how you know, he is very much a feminist. It, it made me think of my dad because my dad made me feel and reminded me that there was nothing that I could do because I was a girl. You know, the idea of gender didn't cross my mind because I spent a lot of time hanging out with my brother and his friends and, you know, I used to kick the footy at school. I, used to, I, I, was, I was such, I hate using the word tomboy because I still yeah. had very girly moments, but I was also, you know, hanging out with boys. So for me, 
the ideas of what a, what a girl should do versus what a boy should do. I wasn't getting that in my home environment. I was, I was getting it outside in the world, but certainly not at home. And so when it came to deciding what I wanted to do with my life, my parents were always just go for whatever makes you happy. Still to this day, my biggest cheerleaders, whenever I tell them that I want to do something, even when I'm doubting myself, my parents are the ones that are going, yeah, you can do it. Because cheerleaders are. Yeah. But again, it goes back to that idea of the stereotypes because people sort of think that when you come from certain backgrounds or whatever, that, um, you know, that you don't necessarily come from a, from a supportive family structure or whatever and all this sort of stuff. And again, you just have to treat individuals like individuals because every person is different and they're not their stereotypes. But yeah. Every person, every family unit as well. I think that that's family units in general. Take away race and culture and religion. Every family unit is different um, and every individual is impacted differently by that family unit. So you had a, you had a good early life and, and obviously quite educated, which is excellent. Um, and I guess uh, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you think we can work on in Australia around the conversation about, I guess, maybe just breaking any stigmas. Is there anything else that we could possibly do day to day? Gosh, it's such a big, big question. You could do a couple of PhDs just trying. <laughs> really. But I guess, you know, I think, I, I guess the first question, I, the first thing I always say to people, particularly when they're thinking about, when thinking about these sorts of things is when you're encountering someone that comes from a different background, and this is not, just to do with race, it could be sexuality, it could be gender, it could be class. Whatever your experience is with that person, see it as your experience with that person. Don't take that experience and then sort of go, well, then every woman must be like this. Yeah. Every person that lives in the house, in a housing commission has to be like this or that every, I mean, treat that person and view your experience as with that individual and that that individual has come with their own stuff because of, where they've grown up and how they've grown up and that's shaped how they move through the world and don't use those encounters to sort of paint a whole community through through your encounter with someone from a certain group but also I think to ask questions and to be curious I think that the more you spend time with people the more you realize that we're all just the same I mean we've just met and we've been having this conversation but I feel like I know you I would love to grab a drink with you at some let's point come on girl let's do it I mean I'm Muslim but I drink I'm not gonna lie I'm sorry <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, espresso martini. You know, they, they, they make the non-alcoholic drinks now, so it's cool. Hey, that's fine. Especially after lockdown, everyone's like, everyone's you know like, like, like <laughs> but, but, I, but I can relate so much to everything that you were saying and your experience, but we're both living in different parts of the country. And so if I'd come into this with different ideas or whatever, this would have been a very different conversation. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. for people to sort of just be open and just treat people the way you want to be treated. And, and the more you, you have conversations with people, you just realize we're all really just the same. We all want the same things. We want to be seen. We want to be respected. And we also just want to prosper in our lives. We want to do well. We want to be loved. And that cuts across every background. I want to ask you something. And it's, it's a pretty, it's very personal. And at any, any point you could just be like, Abby, no. And people often ask, you know, is Australia a racist country? I'm going to say to you as a whole, I'm going to say yes. But individually, as someone, as a, as a woman of colour who's been out there, who spoke to people in the middle of a, a pub in Penrith, 
versus, you know, being abroad and when someone knows that you're Australian, you know, it's like the, if you just hear an Australian accent, you go, oh, we're Aussie. Like you've got this mateship. So it's really bizarre because I've seen the good and I've seen the bad. I've seen the terrible. I've had someone yell out at me, you're all rapists. You know, obviously with the Bilal Scaff thing, obviously he's come, you know, he's come out soon. So that doesn't, you know, obviously didn't help with the, I mean, there's a, there's a Middle Eastern crime squad, for God's sake, uh, with the New South Wales police, if that's not enough to say, we, obviously we needed it. It was needed. And I'm not, I'm not going to take away from, the, from those horrible, horrible crimes. But to have something like that yelled out to me at the age of, I guess I was 12, I was walking to, I was walking just across local streets with my cousin. Someone said, oh, I think my cousin said something to me in Arabic. It would have been just something normal. And you know what? Like the woman might have even been under some sort of substance. I don't even know. She could have been, you know, abusing some sort of substance or she couldn't have. She could have just been overtly racist. Overtly racist encounters, I think that's something that you can almost not forgive, but you just go, they're just an idiot as you get older, but I think everyday kind of interactions of racism, you yeah, have someone you're like, oh, you know, you're rapists. Which part hurts you more, I think, the openly racist comments or the people that try to kind of pussyfoot around it, to be honest, and say things daily? I mean, it all hurts because it's all coming from a place of someone's making a judgment about me that isn't true and they've decided in that moment to react based on a narrative that I can't control. and. Yeah, I mean, I, I've experienced racism, overt, violent racism. I've experienced, I experienced daily microaggressions. I think one of the wonderful things about lockdown has been that I've sort of been shielded from a lot of that that I used to experience quite a fair bit, which gets very frustrating. Two weeks ago, I experienced, I was racially profiled. I was coming into my own apartment building, actually. I was going to get groceries and I was holding a box of fruit and veg and I had my keys and there was a woman walking in front of me and she was swiping to get into the building and because so physically distancing i let her you know walk in ahead of me and i'm following her behind and this is a it's not a big apartment complex there's probably like 12 dwellings in the building and it's very much in a sort of middle class suburb where not a lot happens yeah. <laughs> and it was still during the day it was probably about six so it's still quite light out so she turns around and she sees me following her and I've got my keys and I've got my phone and I come back from a run so I had my headphones in and so she she then sort of goes do you live here are you supposed to be coming in and so I'm sort of going I can hear her but then I also just don't want to engage in this so I keep walking in and then she stops and then she realizes what she's just said because wow. I'm walking into the building and then she t says to me she says oh look I'm really like that's not like you know like it's just that sometimes we're just worried about security and like I've been living in this building for two years <laughs> wow um, and you know and this was in my own building it's happened before when I've had when I, whenever I used to I used to have an office at one of the big institutions in the city and I used to work out of there for two years and this was when I was working on the research and the archive mm -hmm. for this for this documentary in the book and I, and I usually would work really late. So sometimes until like one night or whatever, but this particular day was, it was around three in the afternoon and I was, I was lecturing from across the road. There was a, there's a uni across the road and this institution is on the other side of the road. So I was coming back from lecturing and I was changing my lanyards. Um, and as I was walking into the building, a colleague of mine was walking into the building that we we're both getting into. So instead of, you know, getting my access card I just followed him and there was already a guy at the door who was checking people in and he'd seen me coming in and out of out that day and you know he knew that it was fine and also it was one of those buildings that even when you go in you can't proceed further because you need an access card to get to the next floor 
and this guy comes out of the lift and he sort of stops me. He sees me, he stops and he's like, are you supposed to be here? And I said, yes, yes. I'm just going up to my office. But, and I don't think twice about it because it's one of those things. Mm. And then he sort of starts asking me questions. He's like, I need to see your ID. And I sort of thought, excuse me. And he said, I need to see your ID. Why are you in the building? I said, I've got an office upstairs. I mean, why else would I say I've got an office upstairs if I'm just, you know, wondering or whatever. And then I started to realize, I'm like, oh my goodness, this person is racially profiling me. I'm not supposed to be in this building. And so I, so then I point to the guy that was at the door and I said, he's been there all day and he's seen me and he hasn't said a thing and you're stopping me. And I said to him, there's literally a security door there that I cannot get past so much so that even if I keep walking, I can't get beyond that point. And then he sort of goes, no, I've just never seen you here. Bloody, bloody. But I'm like, well, is that my problem? Cause you know, I've been here for three years, two years at that point. Sorry. And at this point, had you shown him your pass? No, I was trying to make okay. it. Uh, yeah, point. That's sure. what, you're doing something here, and I'm trying to get you to understand that you are racially profiling me in this. Absolutely. Moment. And then he sort of goes, No, 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 you know, I'm security, and we do security checks. And I said, Well, there was someone else. You know, I said, Dom was in front of me, but you never stopped him. You know, and he's just gone. And I, and I said his name as well. So I'm sort, of, I'm sort of going, You know, and I just sort of said, Are you, you know, I, I feel like you're racially profiling me. And then he gets upset, and then he starts walking out. And then I sort of said, hang on a second, you were worried about security and you, you're leaving me in the building. <laughs> if it is a security issue, deal with it if it's a security <laughs> issue. But you're clearly... That's right. Yeah. And so we ended up filing, a, 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 because there were witnesses and stuff, and we filed a report and complained and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, this was an institution that wasn't used to seeing people like me, because a lot of people that were in that building, unless you were, you were a cleaner or something like that, it was just, it's, it's one of those very, very old institutions. Mm-hmm. And... The list goes on and on and on, like I said. It's the everyday little nuances, those encounters that are, they're tough, man. It does, it grates at you slowly. And they chip, yeah, they chip away at your dignity because it's, you constantly have to fight for your humanity. You're fighting to be seen. You're just fighting to be seen as you. You just want to be seen as Abby. I just want to be seen as Santi. You don't want to be seen as anything. Santi, can I just ask you though, babe, can we go back to, I'm just thinking of you as just one of my girlfriends who's in an apartment. You're going upstairs, you're holding a bag full of groceries, whatever. You've got your eggs there, you've got your broccoli. Yeah. I don't care. You've got, maybe you might have some tampons in there. I don't know. You know, you've got your shops shopping. I mean, look, we don't need to go into too much detail here. But, you know, you've, um, you're going upstairs. And the fact that this woman asked you, should you be here? Yeah. Like, mate, you've lived there for a few years. I've lived here for two well, years. Did she think that, like, and I'm going to say this, and I really don't want this to come out as overt racism. Who did you think you were? Just like some random person who's dropping off groceries, like, like an Uber kind of service, like an air tasker? Is that what she thought? Honestly, I don't know. I don't. Why else would you be hanging out? Who, loit- who loiters in apartment buildings anyway? Well, especially the, the particular suburb that I live in because they're not, Correct. not that many. It's, it's very leafy. It's very... Look, middle is, class, you said. Yeah, it's a leafy nice. It's yeah. not, not a lot goes on. It's very uneventful in that way. And it was during the day, not that it would justify. Which is it. what you want in your home, of course. <laughs> right. And it was one of those things where I sort of thought, gosh, even in my own home, I can't feel safe. You know, even in my own home, I have to explain myself. Because you sort of think that there's certain places that you can be shielded from that sort of stuff. Mm. And the thing that frustrated me was she would have left that encounter. Who knows how she would have felt, but she would have very quickly just moved on that evening. It, uh, that took up my whole night. I couldn't do any work. I couldn't, because I just, 
I was just so angry and I, and I wish I'd reacted differently because I was sort of thinking, you know, when you, in hindsight, you sort of go, I could have said this, I could have done, you know, and I just, and just sort of replaying it, it back. It would have up your night. It absolutely would have stuffed yeah, up your night. I spent my evening sort of going through all of that in my head. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, to answer your earlier question about whether or not Australia is racist, the answer would be it is. And I say it is because it depends on how you define racism. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work and research in the anti-racism space. And when I talk about racism, I'm not talking explicitly about the overt racism people are familiar with. This, what we're talking about today, the examples I've just talked about, a lot of that is overt racism. And a lot of people can identify that, particularly with the slurs and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, but then the other ways that racism shows up is through unconscious bias. And unconscious bias can be in how you discriminate people without realizing why you're discriminating against them. So a lot of studies have been done around people from migrant backgrounds with non-anglicized names and how sometimes they're passed up on employment opportunities because someone has seen a name and they make assumptions about that. So that's an example of unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And this, this doesn't just happen in when people experience racism, but it also happens with sexism as well. And then the other manifestation of racism is through institutional racism or systemic racism. And this is where these power structures advantage certain groups while disadvantaging others. And in Australia, when you look at every development indicator, it's very clear that the most disadvantaged groups are First Nations people. And that is racism, because if you have a group that is overwhelmingly overrepresented in statistics, that becomes a very a racialized thing because you sort of go, why is this particular group only showing up in this case? And so the data shows it. We know it's happening systemically, institutionally, but I think the conversation we should be having is not so much this debate of, are we, aren't we racist? Because I mean, and because people take racism and being called racist very like, you know, people just don't want to be called racist. Yeah. Um, and it, racism, it's not about being a bad person or bad intention or good intention to all of that. It's just sort of recognizing. I think everyone has at one point said something that was ignorant that we don't realize. Like, I, don't know, I don't want people to walk around. This is the thing. As a person of color in Australia, I don't want people to walk around pussyfooting around me and being too scared and politically correct. That's fine. Be who you are, but just be mindful of the people around you and the things that you say, because they really hurt. They actually, and it doesn't just hurt you, your situation, you would have went home and you could have called your mom and told your mom about that situation. You would have been upset. It, it, It just, it trickles down. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, the focus of the conversation should always be to how do we begin to dismantle racism? Because racism, what people don't understand was it was created, you know, it was a product of the transatlantic slave trade. So when Africans were being trafficked to the Americas to develop the plantations and all that sort of stuff, they were at that point being transported simply as Africans. Africans, To be exploited for their labor. And when it started to become incredibly profitable for European countries, they decided that how do you keep these people subjugated? And race was thus created. So they were then put in the category of you're black and we're white. And this is what it means to be black. And then the narratives around that were created and all these laws and all this legislation. And so for hundreds of years, you had this system that just kept reinforcing itself. Right. And so the Mm. system then was abolished, but the ideas and attitudes didn't Didn't change. They take time. That's the thing. Even now. Right. And so when we're talking about, how these systems disadvantage people, the conversation should be, 
how is it possible that in 2021, some groups are being overrepresented in crime statistics, don't have access to good housing, good education, all these sorts of things that contribute to someone's development outcomes. And that's a conversation we should be having because these things can be dismantled because like I said, it was created. So we can dismantle racism, but we have to start looking at how it shows up. And, and there's a lot of work that's been done by a lot of very, very smart people and academics and people that know the answers. And it's just, we're just a little bit slow to get there, but there is a lot of work being done that really shows how we can fix these sorts of things, whether it's in health. A lot of the experts that I speak to talk about making services that are culturally appropriate and, and, and accessible to people, because obviously for some people, English isn't their first language. Absolutely. And we saw this with the pandemic. That's right. And that impacts outcomes. So if you can meet people where they are, rather than expecting people to meet you at a certain point when they don't have the tools to get to that certain point because they've been systemically disadvantaged, and yet you're expecting people to sort of go, well, we did it, therefore you should do it too. It's like, well, we're not starting at the same point. That in itself is a privilege. That in itself is speaking of, you know, with, with privilege. That is someone of privilege who is making this assumption of someone who does not have the same opportunities that you've had in itself. Does that not make sense? It's almost that privilege at the beginning. That's the part that doesn't sit right in my stomach. That's the part that kind of niggles at me. And that's the conversation that I'm probably more interested in having. How do we begin to dismantle these systems to ensure that people aren't being left behind, that every mm. child that's being born in this country, irrespective of their background, has an opportunity at a fair go, really. That's probably where our attention should be, not this thing of, is this, aren't we, are we, are we? I mean, there are countless examples. We won't be the first people to talk about this. We won't, certainly won't be the last people to talk about our own experiences with racism and microaggressions and all of that. But at what point do you hear all these stories that you go, maybe we should be fixing this? How do we start fixing this? And that's kind of where I just wish and hope we can shift our attention to because it costs people's lives. I mean, this, this impact lives and that's not the sort of country we want to be living in. Not at all. And I think the reason, the whole reason I've actually begun this, this podcast is, is to amplify the voices of women like yourself, you know, women of color. And, and, and I do not want to in any way, shape or form, belittle any woman who is a white woman. That's not a problem. That, that goes against everything that I am as a feminist in general. But at the end of the day, as you said, if you're underrepresented, it's not great. So if, if, I can, if my podcast can give a voice to a woman of colour, why not put it out there? Why not talk about these situations that we've actually, we've lived it, we lived it ourselves. We're going to continue to live it. I'm going to live it with my children if we go on to have children. And then, you know, it, it's really interesting because it's going to be the second generation, if that makes sense. Obviously, I'm a first generation Australian. But how it trickles down, it just it, it's a conversation that's constantly evolving. We're all evolving. And obviously, racism is there. And as you said, like, we've got to focus on, on the good parts and kind of really get in there and, and figure out what to do next. But in saying that, can I say, God, there is an amazing caliber of incredible and inspiring women of colour, and I'm just so excited about what's to come next. Um, just even putting the list together for the people that I want to speak to, I'm so excited by it. Until so obviously you're one of them. It's fucking amazing. It's so good to speak to you and to hear your voice because this is something that I wouldn't have known otherwise, if that makes sense. I think we, we need to have these conversations because no one's going to learn if you don't hear about it and if you don't see it. In mag As a child, I mean, obviously my background is magazine journalism. Mm. You know, I picked up Cleo, Cosmo. And interestingly, the only, hey, 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 we, we love that stuff, you know. And, and, the, and 
the only coloured woman we ever had on Cosmo Australia, I remember it was the biggest kerfuffle at the time, was Beyonce. I mean, it's Beyonce, right? And that's because Beyonce kind of, she does that whole, and I'm not going to go into the whole Beyonce situation, how every white girl wants to be Beyonce. I'm not going to go there because I love Mariah Carey. But so like there's, there's some underlying tension between yeah, them. Yeah, but it's okay. <laughs> those people and to admire those people, right? Yeah, yeah. Because when I, I remember, and this is what, what, just your point about the podcast in honor of Colin, how you were sort of going, this is in no way taking away from white women. And I agree with you, but I also think that, think about how we were growing up and how we were socialized. I used yeah. to have Dolly and Cleo, and I used to get the worst makeup advice because it was in there and it didn't work for my skin tone, clearly. But I still... Yeah felt part of the process because these were stories because this was about women. And I think that women that they might not necessarily share my culture background or your culture background, yeah. but can certainly come to these stories because we, we relate to, we, we, we start from the same point first and foremost, human, Absolutely. right? And because we're human, we can relate to every other human being. And so when they're two women of color having a conversation, that doesn't mean that the conversation is excluding anyone else. Absolutely not. That's it. This is an open conversation. This is a double shot. I'm telling you, we're talking about the sad stuff. We can talk about the happy stuff. But, but, this, but, but I was just kind of trying to just affirm what you just said and just essentially go, we're constantly looking. I remember in my 20s, I was obsessed with sex in the city. I mean, oh, it's what I'm taking on New York. Um, nothing relatable with my own lived experience here in, in Melbourne, but I certainly, there was a lot about them as women that I could still relate to. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's just the point. It's that we it's can- universal. That's it. We can all relate to each other. But the thing that limits people from that is when the bias kicks in because you mm. sort of, oh, maybe it's not for me because it's women of color talking. It's like, no, it is for you. It's women having a chat, you know? That's it, 100%. A no bar chat, no bullshit. We don't care. I mean, it's not, I, I, I do a lot of bullshit. It's all on me. It's not on Santi. It's on Abby. Um, but that's just me. You can tell me when I'm waffling. But the the interesting thing that you mentioned, Sex and the City, obviously love it. Very excited about the upcoming. Um, yeah. Uh, so RIP. Absolutely horrible. I was actually devastated by that. I didn't. I actually. This is so interesting. I I believed that character. I literally thought he was gay. The actor. Wasn't he? Stanford. No. He has a son. Oh, man, I went on and I went to town. So well, New York. His son's adopted, isn't he? Isn't he? No, but he actually had a partner who was a female. So he, he was so believable in the role. So the man who played Stanford, his, his son was adopted, but he was he was in a relationship with a woman for about 19 years or so, about two decades. And the constant kind of the part of their relationship that didn't work was he wanted to have kids. She was like, I don't want to have kids. Right. Eventually they broke up. He adopted that son. He ended up having his son and he's given this amazing life to, to his son. And yeah, he, he had a girlfriend. He, had, he, had, he actually had a partner, a female partner the whole time. But he was so believable at Stanford that I actually thought the actor was gay. So, listen, hearing the story, saying that theme of like stereotypes, I mean, there's this cultural stereotype that it's women that want children, men don't want children. And then here you've got an example that, you know, and this is Willie Garson we're talking about. Sorry, we just we, we started to call him Stanford just because that's his character name in Sex in the City. But of course, rest in peace to Willie Garson who who passed away. Um, well, I think it was last month now, yeah, in September, which is really sad. Um, but yeah, but about Sex in the City. So this this is interesting now. Where you've just kind of come up to my next topic. I was going to ask you, what are you Netflixing right now? Nothing actually. Bad at watching television. For someone, for someone that makes stuff, I don't. I, I'm very bad at watching it. I watch a lot of obscure 
indie films. I'm very excited about Succession coming back, though. That's something that very I... Very good, yeah. I am watching The Masked Singer. <laughs> watching The Fire Friend. So I'm watching that. Um, what else am I watching? Yeah, I mean, everything that I'm watching is just, like, really... Obs- it's just... It's, it's films that you've probably never heard of by filmmakers. I'm going through a couple of retrospectives at the moment, so I'm watching... These three filmmakers, one's Iranian, Abbas Kiarostami. So I'm going through all the films he's made. I'm going through all of Spike Lee's films. I'm on Malcolm X at the moment and I'm taking breaks because the three and a half. You hours. need to take breaks, man. Yeah, that's going to be, a, that's a long leg. Yeah. And then I'm also doing Eric Romare, who is also a phenomenal filmmaker because he balanced between documentary and narrative. So that's really what I'm obsessed with watching. But yeah, probably last thing. But then I watch a lot of YouTube stuff. I love watching YouTube makeup tutorials. That's my love that. Love that for you. I've been doing one of my friends, she's seven, Hannah, is obsessed with Halloween. So we're going to reading this month. And she is dressing up. She keeps changing her costume. And I decided I'm gonna go as a cloud. So I've been learning the YouTube makeup cloud thing because I wanna paint my face with like as a cloud. I love this. Uh, watching so many. I could probably teach a class in how to do cloud makeup. The thing is, once you start on one of those makeup tutorials, before you look at the time, it's like it's 2 a.m. It's actually really sad. The time that you dedicate. That's it. They, 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 they really do suck your time. Oh, but man. Watching a lot of that stuff. But, but a lot of the stuff that I watch, unfortunately, because it's because of work, I'll watch a series. Like I was watching a, a series called Little America last week, it's an Apple TV series, but that was also because of work. So sometimes I'll watch things that everyone's watching because of work, because it might have a reference and stuff. But the things that I sit down to truly, truly enjoy, it's been a long time. And Succession's probably the only thing on my radar. I wanted to ask you, did you ever watch Dear White People? I watched on Netflix. Netflix. I watched the film, but I've never yeah. watched a series. I'll be honest, I don't watch a lot of those sorts of shows. Mm. And the reason is, is a lot of my work sits at those intersections, as in, I'm already, expl- like, you know, if I could show you my pile of books, like I have <laughs> books and they're all dense and they're all just, and so a lot of the stuff I'm already reading about. So when I'm sitting down to watch something, the odds are that I'm not going to watch something that's already telling me what I've been reading. Really know? Yeah, that's correct. So I, I get that. I love that they exist and I, and I want more of that sort of content. Mm. It's weird how I find belonging in it, in watching something like that. I'm not African and I'm not American. I'm such a wannabe New Yorker. I love New York. It's my favourite city in the world. But in saying that, like, when you watch something like that, it does teach you a lot more about overt racism and the kind of the undertones, the things that are just said daily. And you go far out. It's a system. It's a massive system. And we're all kind of just a part of it. So I do find it interesting when you do mention that. So, Tilla, I need to ask you, my darling. What's your coffee order? What's your coffee order? I've got my coffee here. I've got today. I've got a a long black with a dash of honey, but it's an iced long black because it's scorcher today in Sydney. What's your coffee order? I love a long black with a splash of oat milk. Oh, oat milk. Okay. Just need the milk to cut through the coffee. Like I'm very basic when it comes to my coffee. Yeah. Like, I love Blend 43, Nescafe. Like, I Oh, just- wow. Okay. See, I think I'm a coffee connoisseur. Like, I am into that. I am that person. I am that dicky, wanker human who will sit there and, like, want to know where the bean was made, who was picked it, was it ethically, how, how did you, who picks it, how did they pick it, how did it get here? I want to know everything. So I just want 
because co- I can only do one cup of coffee because after that I just, you know, it's just, it just gets a bit too much for me. Yeah. And I find that I just love the taste of coffee, but sometimes with a really fancier coffee when it's very robust and all that sort mm. of stuff and you're drinking it just as a long black, mm. it, it hits you, yeah. So the oat milk. Okay. I like oat milk. I don't mind oat milk. I like it more than almond. But also for the environment, I think it's better. That's it. Absolutely. My normal coffee order, so just so you know, just so you could see how much of a complicated human I am and where, where it stems. So there's a lot happening up here. But I have a long black with a dash of hot skim mm-hmm. and chocolate on top. And it's actually called an abicino. So hang on, like chocolate powder? Chocolate or- powder. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Try it. Look, you don't need to have hot skim. You can have your hot oat. Is, is your oat milk cold? Or do you have it? Because that makes a difference, the temperature. I feel like it's cold. But I, I will try that, actually. I'll try Try the Avicino. It's good, man. Okay, I'll let you know. I'll let you know how I go. Get the oat milk. See if, it, if you can get hot. I mean, obviously, it's different. But it, essentially, it just means that it's a stronger cap. It's kind of like if you have a strong cap, it's still got a lot of milk in it. I'm actually lactose intolerant, so I should have the oat milk. But, yeah, I came about that weirdly. That's my morning coffee. But usually I have, um, in the afternoon, I have a long black or just a short black. Love the coffee. You're like, why did I start this conversation? Someone get this bitch a blend 43. I'm tea. I'm a tea drinker. So I drink tea from noon right until, I usually go to bed about three in the morning. Okay. Oh, wow. She's a creative. Tell me you're a creative without telling me you're a creative. (laughs) I love a nap. So that's also another reason why I can stay up pretty late. Same. Love a nap. So good. Santilla, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? No, just, you know, counting down to having a coffee with you IRL. Let's do it, girl. I'm very excited to get back to Melbourne, man. I, and, and you guys have really had a tough year, let's be honest. So look to y'all to, for inspiration. Hopefully we can have a coffee, fingers crossed. We will, we will. In Melbourne or an espresso martini. I don't care. I'll have both for sure. Thanks so much, Centilla. No, you just got me thinking about cocktails and all that. Now she wants a cocktail. <laughs> it's Monday. Who cares? Why not? Hey, look, we're in lockdown. Anything goes, right? You do. You. Before we finish up, though, I will say, Santilla, our African Roots comes out, and that's on SBS. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to mention, or we all good? We're good to go. We're good to go. I think I hope people watch it, like it, share it. Do all the things. Um, um, and Santilla um, Chingapi, did I say it correct? There she is. Can we follow you on Instagram or Twitter? Is there anything you'd like to? I'm only on Instagram. Okay. Um, exclusively, there. yep, guys, exclusively on Instagram. There you go. Santigrams. S-A-N-T-I-G-R-A-M-S. There you go, guys. So you can learn more about Santilla and her amazing film work as well. You're a bomb. It was really lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much. And of course, guys, you can follow me on a, the Double Shot podcast, which you can actually see in the background. Can you see my little kind of I'm gonna squiggy? Yeah, I've got the Double Shot podcast. But yeah, you guys can follow us on Instagram. So lovely to speak to you. All the best. And thank you so much because the work that you're doing really matters and your voice matters. So thank you for joining me today. Likewise, Abby. Thanks, darling. For more of our antics, follow us on Instagram at the Double Shot Podcast. <laughs>